Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, where theology matters. We're going to continue our discussion on the doctrines of sovereign grace, and we are on the fourth. Yes. Yeah. So Even we went out of order. Right. We're still. Yeah. We'd be here now anyway. Right. So we are on uh, the I, which is irresistible grace, and. Um, I think R.C. Sproul ends up changing all the letters because he's not happy with any of them. <laughs> right. Uh, so he changes this to effectual grace. So it's a grace that has an effect, that will produce an effect in people. Um, I'm okay with that. Yeah. yeah. And he specifically talks about, of course, people resist God's grace. Um, and if you remember our discussion in the total depravity clearly people are resisting god's grace because they're totally depraved um so the question is in what sense is this grace irresistible or in what sense is it uh effectual it's that to those whom god is calling uh it is effectual for them that they will end up uh accepting it it will be irresistible to them now, I, I think we could leave it there, but I think some, there's certain Calvinists or sovereign grace guys that would explain the how God achieves this differently than others. Um, you're hyper Calvinist and maybe they would say, no, you're, you got it wrong. So if you are a hyper Calvinist, um, and you disagree with this, you think I'm straw man and you please comment or something let me know but i think they they would probably object to me using the word zap but um <laughs> uh why <laughs> that, that the holy spirit zaps you and you're regenerate or the holy spirit overcomes you and you're regenerate and then because of that regeneration now your mind starts being turned toward god you start recognizing your sin and then you become you come to him in uh, belief and uh repentance um others would so they so they would put the logical and temporal order to be regeneration then belief and faith whereas we would put the logical order to be regeneration then belief and faith but we would say uh temporally they occur simultaneously um so but i think for me there is a wooing that God does prior to regeneration. You agree or disagree? I'm I'm not completely certain about the temporal aspects of all of it, nor do I think it's necessarily the same for every single case. Yeah, it's probably I, different. I tend to um, think that there's kind of a black stage where we're clearly in a fallen state, a white stage later where we're clearly saved, and then... Uh, a gray stage in the middle that frequently is very, very short, but perhaps um, if God chooses to do some means where he's working on people over time, um, I don't think anybody dies in the gray stage. I think all of those whom God calls make it to a, a saved state temporally in mm -hmm. this life. And so 
uh, I think I think it's important to think these things through, but I'm not sure that we can drill down and pin everything precisely in every person's life. Yeah, certainly there's different people. Uh, we have an elder in our church who says, no, maybe someone told me the gospel before, but I was such a rebel um, and hellbound that I have no memory of anyone sharing the gospel with me until he went to one of his college professors at CSU's house and was like, something's wrong, you know, I need help, I think Mm -hmm. is what he said. And that professor shared with him the gospel, and he, you know, immediately believed and received. Um, But you and I would both say that God's providence led him to recognize his need. Some need. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then go to someone that had the gospel to tell him of the remedy right. for his need. So Right. I was just saying, giving that story like in juxtaposition to someone who would say, you know, I was in church mm-hmm. all my life and heard the gospel over and over again, and then I understood it, but then finally it clicked or something like that, right. uh, which would be closer to my story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked to, I, I asked Greg Kokel, called into a show a couple times. So we're doing name dropping again, are we? Yeah, well, one prominent uh, apologist and theologian, <laughs> uh, and uh, he's uh, he would also agree with us that it's um, regeneration is at least simultaneous hmm. um, with belief and repentance. And he was talking about the verse where in Ephesians it says, "Having believed, we received the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. as a seal of our uh, redemption." And um, so he thinks that they they go together. So you wouldn't receive the Holy Spirit first, and then that would produce belief later on temporarily at least um and he talks about wooing i guess sheds dogmatic dogmatic um which i don't have i've heard it's uh quite um thick to read like gargling uh peanut butter butter. (laughs) which never gets easier by the way right well after you warm it up maybe um but he talks about God's drawing and wooing, and it's almost like it's a romance. Mm. And uh, so, the, you know, for those who are listening and, and know, um, you may know that uh, I laid eyes on my wife in kindergarten, and I thought she was one cute little kindergartner and chased her, and uh, nothing happened. And um, in third grade, I called and asked if she would be my girlfriend. And she wisely said, well, I should check th- this out with my parents. And I don't know what they were thinking, but they said, you're too young to be <laughs> have a boyfriend, which I thought, you know, I was very mature at that, at that age. So, Well, I mean, you were 13, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was the only third grader with a beard. <laughs> Uh, so then, um, I, you know, I stopped pursuing Jill for a little bit. She had, um, a couple other male friends, but then and the, suitors, suitors. Yeah. And then the 11th grade, um, she was going out with a guy in 10th grade towards the end of our 10th grade. And they broke up, I think over the summer and I was like, okay, here's my chance. You know, you know, the stars are aligning. And, um, if you don't know, so if you do know, you know, but if you don't know, then you don't know. I guess it's pretty, uh, a tautology. Uh, but I was pretty nerdy in school. You know, you're surrounded in academics and people really only saw that 
very competitive, very academic side mm. of me. Um, well, thankfully, that's no longer a part of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, all the academics went out, right? Right. right. Yeah. Um, and so when I uh, asked, you know, Jill and I started dating and started doing stuff, I think she said, this is story has a point. Um, uh, I'm not just trying to... <laughs> <laughs> but we we were someplace and something happened at my house and I just reached out. We had these large wooden chairs. And I just reached down and picked up the chair straight from the leg, you know, which you kind of got to do quick in order to not drag it. But And she said she was like, whoa, like, I don't know. It's not like a crazy feat of, of strength or anything, but it was like, whoa, he's, he's kind of strong or something. And then um, she said that the, the moment when she really started like going, okay, there's more to this guy than just books is uh, my niece and nephew were dressed up uh, to celebrate some horribly pagan uh, holiday. Halloween. Halloween. Sinners. But uh, how I interacted with my nieces and nephews, like, oh man, this, he's going to be a good guy. Like he likes kids and stuff. And so she really doesn't get Romans three then. (laughs) Um, I I don't I don't know where you're going with that. What's you said she's a she thinks you're a good guy. Oh yeah yeah yeah. None are good. Right. Well, with God's help, some of us are good. <laughs> um. So yeah. So I would say the more she came to know me, mm. the more she came to like me. Um. In some sense, now, I think there's uh, obviously there's going to be a lot of breakdowns in the analogy, but. As rebels with fallen intellects, and we talked about this a little bit before, um, you know, the, the scholastic version of free will versus determinism wouldn't, they wouldn't know those words. They would say, we choose according to our nature, mm-hmm. and our intellect is what's at fault because our intellect is serving up the good. And then our will will always go after the good. Now, there's people, sometimes people have a hard time with this because they're like, well, the guy that jumped on the grenade didn't choose the good. No, at that moment, his intellect says, this is the best thing for you to do. And then the will always does what's good. And so as we come to know who God is and we appreciate him for who he is and we see his nature and he reveals himself to us. He opens up his eyes. I think he's wooing us to him and we, he is a good, perfect being, Mm -hmm. beautiful, lovely. We could put all those uh, adjectives in there. And just like Jill came, came to fall in love with me, we come to fall in love with God and we want a relationship with him. So I, I would say, that that kind of stuff is going on in that gray period for most folks Mm -hmm. that uh, God is using circumstances, people in our lives to both show us that we are great sinners and that his son is a great savior. Yeah. The way I've typically thought of it is God is objectively good, right? As believers, I hope we would all not have any problem with that. We fail to recognize and appreciate that because of our fallen nature. And I I think this is probably almost a perfect echo of what you were saying, but 
as God reveals his goodness to us, right. and I would say as he gives us a heart that is not in rebellion to that, the natural response of that condition is love. Mm-hmm. The natural response of a heart with the capacity to love a God who has revealed how awesome he is, is humble submission. I mean, so uh, I think many times the objections that I hear to irresistible grace um, go into violations of free will and all kinds of categories that interestingly, I I don't actually find in scripture, but um, I also would agree that I'm not saying that God does what they hear us saying that God does. Right. Right. No one is dragged kicking and screaming into heaven. Conversely, no one is pounding on the door of heaven trying to get in in repentance and faith and is shut out. Right. Right. So, um, you know, this is one of the reasons I think that irresistible grace is just kind of a logical. I think there are some scriptures that point to it, but I also think that once you can prove from scripture, total depravity, unconditional election and the limited atonement, this really follows from that logically so that God doing the work that he has to, to overcome our nature that is expressed in total depravity and to enact his election because of what he has ordained becomes a situation where the grace that he extends to his children has the intended effect that he wants it to have that it's and i do i do agree with sproul that the irresistible is probably an unfortunate term because that almost has implicitly within the term that some people want to resist and god is brainwashing them or something right i mean it it almost has a negative connotation within the term itself right but someone could say you know you walk in and it's been a long day and and someone's cooking brownies, for example, and you smell that waft to you and you might say, man, those brownies are irresistible. Like it's just, I, you know, I cannot, no one's overpowering your will there. You just find something to be, you know, good. <laughs> Let's find a better <laughs> analogy. Why is that? Brownies would not be an objective good in my current dieting situation. Oh, well, yeah, I, yeah, the the your not your intellect may be fallen and be <laughs> telling you that these are good. All right, so I thought we could read through some scriptures. Um and this first one is rather long, but I think we should read it all in order to um deal with the context and one of the reasons was one of our listeners who i know i know him personally whom i know personally um texted me and proposed an alternate uh version of the common at least i'll say calvinistic understanding of john six thirty five through 65 and and uh hopefully i'm doing it justice i think i sent it to you too uh, but basically, his and I don't know that he necessarily believes this. He was, I think, he was more thrown out. Like, have you ever heard of this? What do you think about it? Um, but, but basically, the the thought was when um, we get to 
where he says, you know, I, the father, all that the father gives me, I will raise up and I will lose none. That is more of a Jew Gentile distinction. I've read through this passage two, three times since then and tried to put those types of distinctions in there. And honestly, I don't see them. I don't see how you would get there. Um, So, um, so I'll I'll just read it starting in verse 35. Uh, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day." Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How how does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except the one who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink, and he he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. All right, so a pretty long extended passage one that uh, I think most of us are familiar with, one where there are a lot of folks following Jesus because he fed them, and uh, he makes mention of that. And I think he's starting to give them some difficult sayings to show the ones who are following him just for a meal that, hey, you're not really in this for the right reason. Um, it's to, almost like he didn't read how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> yeah. And so <clears throat> he gives them some difficult statements, which we, in hindsight, I think perfectly understand what he's saying. But to them would have been, you know, very, uh, maybe almost immoral uh, because he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Um, and he says he turns to his disciples. Now, I... I you got to be careful with the word disciple. Sometimes we read disciples and we think it means the 12 apostles. Um, and sometimes I think it does mean that uh, other times it just means all those who are following because the disciple is kind of a generic term and it just means uh, someone who follows or a student of someone. And so I, I take this at the end where it says um, he knew which ones were believers and which ones weren't. Obviously Judas is in there, but there could be other, you know, of the you know multitudes. There were, um, many who followed him around, he's saying, you know, I knew some of those never be- were believers as well. Well, I think if you, if you look at 60, it says, and I'm reading from the ESV, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, and then you have that paragraph. And then the verse that you didn't read, the next one is, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So, right. And then Jesus turns to the 12. So I right. think you're clearly right that at least the last paragraph where it's to the disciples is still a broader crowd than just the 12 right so i don't know how i don't see any indication that he's talking about you know some places he says you know you know you're my sheep but i have sheep from another flock i think that's clear he's talking about the gospel going to the gentiles at some point i don't see anything that would say oh he's talking about the gospel going out to the gentiles now Clearly, when he says something about the bread coming out of heaven, uh, if you're a, a staunch Jew, that would you know pull up this imagery of man, of the manna that they ate. That um, I think that's what. So they're trying to compare him to to the that manna, and he says, you know, your fathers ate that manna and they died, but I'm giving you a bread that will give you eternal life. <clears throat> so I don't see. Do you see anything here that would maybe lend itself to a Jew versus Gentile. Well, I mean, it, <clears throat> reading. I do see a couple times, like forty-one and fifty-two, where the Jews were grumbling or disputing. Um, I think that's probably more easily explained by something like Jesus is pointing out that had they been true, and I'm doing air quotes if you're listening, true Jews, they would have recognized that the bread in front of them was the fulfillment of the type of the bread that was given to their fathers. And so I think my guess here would be that John is highlighting that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
right, as he has done in John chapter 1. I think he's... Not on a national level. Obviously, there were some who received him. I I think in John 1, it's more of a generic statement. Right, 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 right. Not not exhaustive all. Correct. Are you saying that some people can push alls further than what they need to be? I I think, yeah. um, (laughs) Well, in fact, I don't think in John 1, there's even an all there. Right, yeah. um, you know, it just, yeah, he, he came to Israel and, and he says that in the gospel, I came to, to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. Um, and in John 12, where if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I mean, that's clearly him not going to the Jew, I'm sorry, not going to the Greeks who were seeking him because at that time in his ministry, he was still focused exclusively on national Israel. Um, so uh, that's about the only thing that I could even try to interpret mm-hmm. the way Brian did. Um, but other than that, no, I think this is just an explanation of Jesus saying, here's, here's the mission. Here's why I came down. Right. Here's a, not, not exhaustively how it works, but here's a little bit of how it works. Right. You know, um, if, if you're going to be saved, it means you were given to the son by the father. If you're given to the son by the father, then the son will raise you up in the last day. There's, Right, and so some of the operative verses there as they relate to irresistible grace, um, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Uh, So that seems to, the Father has pre-selected some, and he's going to give them to the Son, and they will come to the Son, and then the Son will not cast them out. Um, We talked a little bit about this kind of prefigures a Jewish marriage where the Father... um, in the Jewish society would pick a bride for uh, a young man or an older man. And um, then the, the bride would come to the, the son and then the son would basically propose marriage. And then the bride would either drink a cup of wine signifying that she accepted the betrothal or, or not. And so, and there's some parallels there and he's saying all that the father bring to me will come to me and I won't cast them out. Um, I mean, I, I think I can make a full defense of Calvinism from John um, 6, 37 through 39, yeah. because there is a completely lossless equation of the father drawing to the son, mm-hmm. and it's not every single person that is drawn to the son. All who the father gives or draws to the son come, all who come, it is the will of the father that none be lost. And unless Jesus fails to accomplish the will of God, I mean, he says he will raise them all up in the last day. So there, there seems to me to be nobody who starts that journey who does not finish that journey. And unless you want to go with universalism or say it's not pertaining to salvation, I don't, I don't know how. How you escape it. I, yeah. And so the other, another kind of the other key irresistible grace verse, verse 44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on that last day or on the last day. Um, so no, I agree with your interpretation of this verse, right? I would say if you rip it out of context and if you don't look at the verses that have preceded it, you could logically insert, um, the, that some get say, drawn, but don't right. Yeah. Cause Arminians, you, you hear, uh, Leighton Flowers, still the big voice of Arminianism or provisionalism or whatever you want to call it. Traditionalism. Tra- well, oh, 
It's the tradition. The Southern Baptists were started as Calvinists. There's nothing traditional about Arminianism within Southern Baptist theology. So that that one bought that breaks on you. Oh man, and I'm not even a Southern Baptist anymore. Like I, I I'm I'm somewhat disdainful of the SBC mm-hmm. because I think it's kind of falling apart, but. That's still just bad history. I think mm-hmm. that's what gets me about it. Is it's bad. It's, his, it's his not a. It's not history. a uh, matter of what you believe. It's just a fact. Right. Yeah. You. Yeah. You. You can't claim that it's a traditional belief that goes mm-hmm. back to anyway. Um, but they. They would say, God draws all. Go to John twelve. Right. Which and, we and, will cover. And I would. I would argue with that. But logically. Verse 44, by itself, out of context, in isolation, doesn't say only those who are raised are the drawn. Right. You, you could have more drawn than who are raised up, as long as you don't look at what what else was said. What in just, the chat. Right. Yeah, what was just said so before I, it. Yeah. Again, I agree with your interpretation there. That's why I would go back to 637, 38, and 39. Um, and then, well, gosh, it's almost like John did that since he wrote them in that order. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> or it's almost like Jesus was doing that since he yeah. spoke them in that order. So, um, but in, so that's a very common um, objection that you hear mm-hmm. to 644 is, no, it's this universal drawing. Right. And again, I think by itself, you could almost read 644 that way, but... If you go back, you can't. Right. And so if you look at the, um, I, I think another thing that makes that plucking out of context um, difficult is the, um, the no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then the draw up there above, um, that word means to, to compel or to drag. Um, so if you were, um, compelling someone or you're dragging them through the dirt like you're just you're you're getting them or um it's also used one time in greek poetry to draw water out of a well like you're you know forcibly pulling it up um and so interestingly enough that's the same word that's used in john 12 so then again the, the person who wants to use this, that the father drags every single person, then they've, then they've got to ask themselves, well, is he dragging every single person, pulling them up just like water to him? Is that the call? So does that mean that there's universalism or maybe he has something else in mind? Maybe he's dragging all kinds of people to him. Um, so We'll have to discuss that next week. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, we got through one of our main texts. So we, you jokingly said, I don't know, maybe only two episodes for this, but we haven't even gotten to the objections yet. Okay. I think I could do it in one Sunday school class if I had to. Right. I think you and I like to go down rabbit trails well, yeah, we, that I think are productive. Yeah. Because I, what we don't want to do is just a quickly bop, bop, bop. And then sometimes you're gonna you're gonna do straw men yeah. of what people are, are thinking, and uh, so we want to just take our time, tease it apart, and, uh, and and I would say mostly give adequate time to bring up what we hear as the most common objections right. and try to fairly deal with them. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So stay tuned till next time. We will uh, pick this up again and um, talk more about 
irresistible grace. So thanks. And thanks for tuning in to Mike and Mike Theology Plus. Go give them heaven. There you go. You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology.